On this week's episode of the Patient Driven Supply Network, TraceLink digital strategist Roddy Martin talks to Blue World CEO Jake Barr, who shares insights from more than three decades as the former Global Director of Supply Network Operations for Procter & Gamble. Welcome, uh, Jake. It's good to have you on TraceLink's Thought Leadership Series talking about uh, your experience in agile supply chain and supply chain transformation at Procter & Gamble. Uh, Jake, would you introduce yourself and give us a little bit of your background uh, in supply chain transformation? Yeah, Roddy, thank you. Thanks for having me. Uh, I did uh, call it three and a half decades as a supply chain leader at Procter & Gamble and had the honor of working and leading a team that was devoted to our transformation, initially tied to remaking our business model to be outside-in focused on consumer-driven and the two moments of truth. And then later, putting in our global control towers from which we digitally digitize the business and managing uh, our end-to-end our -end supply chain from our suppliers all the way through to our channel partners. Subsequently, that I've, I've led a boutique supply chain consulting firm that we do business across about seven verticals. So Jake, you've touched on a couple of points that are really care, uh, key in, in healthcare. One is, patient back or shopper back as Procter & Gamble. The second is moment of truth. And the third is how you design the business. Talk a little around moment of truth because it's directly translatable into the patient in healthcare. What, what did that drive? What kind of new metrics and behaviors did it drive in Procter & Gamble? Yeah, I think the, the recognition was that uh, the way we were running our cycles and sequencing of our supply chain was actually inside out instead of outside in. And the aha moment came when our chairman and CEO at the time was really focusing and trying to push us to recognize that, look, if you can't win at the touch point where the consumer chooses to interact with the company, no matter whether that's through various channels or whatever, you never have a, an opportunity to get them to come back. And so we were experiencing business outages. Now, in the grand scheme of thing, we were benchmark across our industry for service and supply, but you know, the numbers lie to you. The numbers do lie. So when you look and you say, hey, we're 99% service level, well, wait a minute, what, what is the value of the 1%? Well, the 1% across a global business as big as ours was literally a billion dollars. And when you think about retooling, what you really have to do is understand that the cadence and the sequence with which all your processes work from that touch point with the patient or the consumer coming back, you really have to rewire them. And it's both process and technology. And I would say it's process leading the technology for how to apply those. So that in itself is an important point. Jake, I want to pick up on a point you and I have spoken about many times, and that is Procter & Gamble never chased, or, you know, leading manufacturers never chase after 100% demand forecast accuracy. It's just not possible. However, you know, P&G always used to say, well, you know, if we get it 95% right, that's great. But we know our capabilities so well that even within that 5% inaccuracy, we're still agile enough to deliver, you know, on time in full to the shopper shelf. So talk a little bit about that because that's a that's a challenge that I don't think a lot of pharma companies who've been protected by high margins and just putting hundreds of days worth of inventory all over the supply chain, that's not that's not the way they've operated. So talk a little around that challenge of operations excellence and delivering to schedule, delivering to plan, 
and and meeting the requirements to to be on available at the shelf or at the patient in healthcare. Yeah, look, there every industry has different cycle links around their production process and QA vetting and and regulatory requirements, etc. But at its very core, you have to ask yourself, what is it I need to do to be continuously improving the agility and the response time of that process? So we always looked at the entire end-to-end supply chain as a, a machine, instead of viewing it as disconnected pieces that required you to build huge buffers. Now, obviously, you need some buffers to cover safety, but really the transformation that that I'm witnessing in life sciences is very similar to virtually every fast consumer type of the business today because the product lines that they used to have are, are morphing into, I'll call it shorter cycle, higher, more frequent expiry type products that are individual uh, crafted. So think of it all the way down to, you know, DNA specific drug regimens, et cetera. So the process that you're referring to is really, as you think about how you're doing process control and not only shop floor operations, you have to have a level of intellect around where the defects are, how the lines are running, whether you're running off center line or not, whether you're drifting in your performance and you can't wait until after to address it. You actually have to put in countermeasures. And so to your point on metrics, our metrics change significantly how we were rewarding our people, whether they were in managing a plant that had uh, shipping responsibility. It wasn't, did I just get it in a truck on time? It's, did I fulfill it all the way to the point of consumption on time, right? That changes the methodology. It changes your psyche of how you think about running the shop. Am I gonna delay shipping something? Am I gonna actually go back and rework some of the causes of the reason why I'm holding a truck to be able to get it out so that I can be more agile into the market. And so I call it crawl, walk, run. Obviously, you have to roll up your sleeves, do the work on the process side to understand where the defects and the level of losses are. It requires a commitment to getting more digital and how you capture data and analyze the data. It requires your people to become more proficient at identifying those gaps and issues and then for you to install predictive capabilities so that you know up front instead of reacting afterwards. Right. And, and you know, one of the other best-in-class kind of uh, uh, benchmarks that I have with PNG is, um, you know, the, the supply chain team got on with the day-to-day business of making sure products available on the shelf. But there was a strategy team under the consumer-driven supply network team under yourself, under the chief supply chain officer, that was really focused on building and codifying capabilities and best practices across the business. And I think, you know, my, my biggest challenge uh, that I have to sort of mentally grasp is how on earth pharma companies are going to build this brand new supply chain capability by people doing, you know, strategy capabilities and building new capabilities in their spare time, as well as running the business. Talk a little bit about the consumer driven supply network team and what was the day to day focus uh, of the business and, and where did you report in the business? What sort of impact did you have on the implementation of supply chain strategy? Well, the, the great news is we were directly responsible for delivering business outcomes. I don't suggest any team that's responsible for a transformation effort that's disconnected 
from the operating outcomes. It has to be part of how they're rewarded as well. Look, you're not, you're not doing this for, uh, for fun. You're doing it because you're trying to transform how you deliver a measurable output, the revenue for the company, the margin for the company, the agility, the cash that's required. So you can free up cash to put it back into product innovation and new equipment purchases, et cetera, all those things that keep you ahead instead of running from behind. But I wanna speak for a second just to the first part of your question, because it was kind of a multi one. Look, you, you gotta understand that, again, I wanna go back to this machine analogy. I think the farce for most people, the error for most people is that they believe that besides the unit off that's metal that's connected to the floor, that the rest of their work really isn't a machine. The reality is it is. And it's got process controls and defects. And so if you don't step back on the people element, so you said, hey, wait a minute, what were we trying to do to codify? We actually recognize that despite what being, you know, having one of the most exhaustive implementations of ERP backbones on the planet, et cetera, that was all the same, by the way, that we had huge variability in how processes were being executed people setting different parameters for how the machines would operate, even though they were sitting side by side, working on the same machine, right? So we, we literally got it down to the understanding that not only did we have to give people initial training, but we actually had to validate and qualify their skill level. I'm, I'm working with a couple of companies now, Roddy, coming out of the pandemic that reality set in as the pandemic started to hit its peak where the companies in question, some very big nameplate companies who stepped back and they couldn't answer very basic questions of how much capacity do we have? How quickly can we get it into the market? Because their people across the unit ops were calculating the capacity differently. Right. I mean, well, one of the more basic fundamental things, but if you don't, invest in the people that you have that are the machine, how do you ever expect it to generate the performance and the business outcome? In the kind of chaos that we operate in today, high levels of demand volatility, needing to change the way the network is connected, the ecosystem, using more contract operators, kidding, assembly centers, new suppliers. It's a constant flow and flush. So you've got to invest in the backbone of your people running it and with the technology that you give them to augment because they can't go off and look at a million transactions per day or a week. Right. They've right. got to have something that goes and does some initial flush and says, hey, here's where I see 15 issues percolating. Now you determine what to go do about it. So Jake, I think you, you touch on another really important point and it's another you know, besides the CDSN transformation team or the consumer driven supply network transformation team, um, the, the fact that um, the problem solving mechanism or process in PNG was to start where the problem happened and walk back into the supply system. Yes. You find in the, in the healthcare industry where, you know, margins are 80% and there's 300 days worth of inventory, they tend to just stuff the system full of inventory and people will get their products. Whereas PNG, without those margins, said, look, let's go to every stock out. Let's work, walk virtually from the place at which the problem happened 
all the way back into the supply network and try and understand what were the characteristics that we needed to meet up to to have this product on the shelf because toilet paper tissues uh, health and beauty care all have different cycle times all have different demand patterns but i think the most intriguing part of the story is the fact that you've got about 400 percent returns from a set of losses simply because to your words you found problems that existed as you walked from the shelf back to supply you didn't even know existed. And I think those are not only technology, those are people, process, and technology. Yeah, I, I describe it as it's the gift that keeps on giving. Right. If you link the ecosystem, there is so much underneath the surface. It's like the iceberg. You think the loss is what's poking through the water. And it for us, it was that initial out of stock. The reality is there was four to five times that amount underneath the surface all the way from the suppliers to the to the channel partners that we weren't seeing because we couldn't we couldn't get to that level. Now once we peeled off the top and started dealing with that, we, it the box opened up again and we said, oh my God, there's another setup. There's there's more money here. So it, it just kept raining money. And, and I think that's profound because I honestly believe that's where the healthcare uh, ecosystem is going to go. I mean, yes, there are obvious issues like, well, this product wasn't serialized or this product was in a cold chain and you lost the, te the, the, the temperature. So we're going to throw it all away. But as you dig down in these issues, there's going to be layers and layers of people, technology, process issues that you're going to uncover that lead to massive returns for the business. But what I think is a best practice at PNG, and there are very few other companies that achieved this, was codifying that approach to instituting best practices. In other words, what are the people best practices? What are the technology, the processes, et cetera? So as you look for this issue, as you analyze this issue and you ask why five times and you dig into the root causes, you're going to find lots of problems and you've got to then systematically go and address them. You will, Roddy. And I, I uh, want to build on something you said earlier, because if you think this is a just a simple connecting of the ecosystem, it's not. I want you to understand it's iterative. So you're going to actually make uh, decisions in the early stage to link the way the ecosystem is connected that you will then rewire in a couple of years as you peel it out and uncover more. So that to me is one of the strengths when people get into the transformation effort. If they think it is a one-time deal, they're missing the point. The whole purpose is to actually, and again, I use, you've heard me use crawl, walk, run. In the crawl stage, the way you'll link the processes to get value, the way you'll use technology to get value, the way you'll organize to get value will be different than in the, the walk and the run stage because you'll be able to make different changes as you start peeling it back. You know, and I think you raise another point just to go back to the consumer-driven supply network transformation team. 
I saw over the five, 10 years I was involved with you, I saw that team change a number of times because as you go from, you know, different business units where their focus is on different products, different cycle times, different challenges. So what may have been central procurement eventually became devolved procurement, which eventually became devolved problem solving on sites, which eventually became centralized visibility of the supply chain. There's no one size fits all stick in a transformation team and walk away. And in five years time, you've got a different supply chain. It required continual nurturing, continually changing the performance and the culture of the organization. Um, what would you say about the leadership of the supply chain organization and how it was perceived in Procter & Gamble as being strategic? I, I think we, we, like any other company, went through our own journey, and I, I think that's still continuing to evolve today because if you look at the challenges of, of the firm that I no longer am with, uh, they continue to evolve in the approach of how, because the challenges of the demand volatility, the cycle response time to the channels, the needing to get things delivered in six hours versus two days or three days where it was before. Uh, the, the psyche though, the supply chain leadership is both a business leader and a supply chain leader because they're expected to bring and identify gaps and opportunities. So now when we're talking about in the, um, the business operations planning meeting, which many people call uh, SNOP, right? Uh, you're looking and saying, hey, we're running ahead of pace on the yield rates on the production. We have more we can sell. Where could we take advantage of it? What market, what margin level would we be able to get? Should we run an additional feature in merchandising? How much could we support? Those are completely different dialogues today than they were before, which was the old school, I call it, um, you know, pointing fingers, demand and supply matching, you know, you should have been more accurate on a forecast. Oh no, you should have known that your yield was going to be X or Y. Yeah, Jake, you and I could go on talking for literally a day as we have done on, on all the benchmarks that I always associate with best in class from Procter and & Gamble. And, and let me just reflect on a point that when the pandemic was sort of socialized more broadly, P&G, in my opinion, was, if not the first company to come out and say, these are the thousands of our products and, you know, by number that are going to be impacted because of this uh, disruption in the supply chain. And, and I still haven't seen many companies come up with any numbers that say, you know, by the way, 50% or 20% or X thousand number of our products are simply not going to be able to be delivered because we're missing the components. So Procter & Gamble, by delivering this control tower visibility across the business, you know, just proved that they had a handle on the end-to-end -end capabilities of Procter & Gamble. So Look, every, you know, any points you'd like to make in closing, Jake? Any advice you'd like to give to? Yeah, I'd give you two. The first is no, no company is perfect, right? And so every company has its challenges. So even in the middle of the pandemic, as we're still experiencing the outages, uh, companies are still going to have supply outages. The question is, are you reacting to them or are you proactive up front knowing they're going to happen and then making business decisions about what you can do about it, how you keep your partners informed, how you use alternate supply if available, how quickly you're able to adjust 
on the fly to those kind of gaps. So that's the first thing is realizing that's where if you dedicate yourself to this, your process, your technology or your org design helps to facilitate that more rapidly. The second is, again, just reiterate the point, look, you, you've got to understand that the transformation effort is a journey. It is a journey. It's not a one-time effort. And you've got to make that part of your normal routine to sit down and say, forward-looking, what, what do we expect the volatility to be over the next 3, 6, 9, 12, 18, 24, 36 months? How are we planning to build our agility to match those changes that we're predicting? What are we doing on the process front to get our people better prepared for that? Because the best job description I have for a chief supply chain officer is in the old world, their job was to report to the CEO and look for some cost savings. In the new world, their job is to actually blow up the business model and reinvent it virtually every two to three years. That's very insightful. And I think, you know, on that note, Jake, I mean, there's a really good reason why, like Apple, Procter & Gamble was retired from the, the AMR Research Gartner Top 25 in the very early stages because Procter & Gamble was always up in the top five of all of the, the, the supply chain companies that were assessed. So it always gives me great pleasure to talk to you and to talk about Procter & Gamble as one of the best benchmarks to supply chain capabilities on the planet. So Jake, thank you for making the time. We appreciate no it. No problems. Hats off to the team that I worked with. Yep, I'm sure. Thanks, Jake. All right. Bye -bye. Have a great day.